Listener Production. What's happening in our brains when we parent? What influences our choices? What causes us to react in certain ways? And why do patterns from our own childhood hang around? By being able to understand the brain, we're actually giving ourselves freedom of understanding our own human experience. Welcome to episode two of our special series, Parenting the Parent with Dr. Rebecca Ray, where we explore what it means to be a parent, the choices we make, the ways that we cope, and how we can turn old patterns into new actions. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt and Rebecca Ray. When we're looking for ways to understand how and why we parent in the way we do, what better place to start than our own brains? That whirring little engine in our head that influences what we think, feel, and how we behave. How does understanding our brain or our cognitive function help us understand how we parent? This is where Dr. Rebecca Ray comes in. Beck is a clinical psychologist, author of several books, and mum to one cheeky little boy. Hi, Beck. How are you? Hi, Chef. Let's start with a little anatomy lesson. Yep. What are the parts of the brain that control thoughts and emotions? Okay, let's just calm this down to begin with because we're not doing a full anatomy lesson. Um, oh, go on. She's got a brain in front of me. You can't see it. It's very squishy. So what we're dealing with is when, we're, when we, we become parents, we're dealing with the limbic system. The limbic system is deep down in the middle of the brain. It's responsible for our survival response. So it's, it's impulsive. It reacts to the stimuli in the environment. It reacts to feelings of threat. We're also dealing with the left prefrontal cortex. Now, the left prefrontal cortex is a smaller structure just behind your left eye, and it's responsible for all the smart parts of the brain. So it does logical, rational thinking, planning, problem solving, and decision making. It also uh, acts to help to make sure that our behaviors are socially appropriate. And then we're also dealing with the right hemisphere of the brain um, at large when we become parents because it's the right side of the brain that does smart parenting stuff. So when you become a parent, specifically when you become pregnant and you birth a baby, then believe it or not, you get more right brain smart. And that means that the right side of your brain is pushing you to do emotional behaviours to bond with your baby. While it's doing that, good news or bad news, I'm not sure, you get a little less left brain smart. <laughs> so, um, Is this memory, maybe? <laughs> yes, Excellent. it's memory um, and it's also just your ability to plan out sequences as well. So as you're bonding with your ba- baby, your brain very much prioritises from a survival perspective the need to bond with your baby. Because if you don't bond with your baby, then obviously there's a risk that your baby's needs won't be met and life won't continue. That means that it doesn't really matter if you remembered what you had for lunch. And it doesn't really matter if you remembered to take the steak out of the freezer for dinner. Or where you put your car keys. Yeah. (laughs) Or or where you put your phone, but it's in your hand. Those (laughs) things don't actually matter. From your brain's perspective, once you've had a baby, all that matters is that you're actually bonding with that little being. What also happens is that 
with such a massive emotional transition, we can end up in a state where we're not really responding to the environment from a place of calm and a place of uh, creative problem solving because we have all our faculties available. Instead, we can end up in a place where we're very anxious and we're responding to the world from a place of survival. So that means that your fight-flight response, fight-flight-freeze um, can be almost like your primary way of responding, like everything is high stakes. You're not necessarily thinking clearly, you're simply responding impulsively, you're snappy, you're irritable, um, and you're extra worried about things that perhaps don't necessarily make sense in the moment, but they feel very real to you. Would that be why when my babies were babies mm. and they cried in the night, mm. even though that happened regularly enough for me to know it wasn't life-threatening. Yep. Every time they woke up crying, my heartbeat just whoosh, everything was like, and I was <laughs> half asleep running to their cot, you know, even though yep. it happened every night, five or six times a night, each time they cried, my adrenaline just, is that related to what you're Absolutely. talking about? You are biologically wired to respond and to respond quickly. I also had the experience where I would be awake and quite literally running down the hall um, before Nissa even realised that there was something to respond to. Um, and I think that when we're talking about the brain, we're also talking about the body because the brain sends messages like text messages via neurotransmitters in the brain. So think of them like little texts. That It's like one structure in the brain texting the other structure in the brain to then tell the body what to do. So if, you're, uh, if you hear your baby cry and your brain sets off alarms that goes, oh, oh, my God, there's a problem. Oh, my God. It then floods your body with adrenaline and cortisol to get you up to meet that baby's needs. And you don't have a control over that, do you? No. I, I remember thinking, God, Siobhan, calm down. It's okay. But I couldn't, like, it, it was just, I was asleep, I was awake, I was running to the crib or to the cot. Yes. And does that continue? Because you said then that's when, you know, your brain, that's what's working. Yeah. And I know definitely that's when, what happened when they were little. But still to this day, I have a very visceral reaction to my children crying. Mm. And I also am the lightest sleeper in my house. Like I will hear, I remember going in, my um, son was sleeping with my husband in another room and my son <laughs> was sitting up sobbing his eyes out because I remember lying in bed going, oh no, Daniel will deal with that. <laughs> and then I walked over and there's little Arlo sitting crying his eyes out and Daniel's fast asleep. Oh. Um, and I just remember thinking, how can you sleep through that? Yeah. But is that about our brains? Yeah, absolutely. Continuing to be wired that way. Continuing to be wired that way. They don't necessarily get unwired from the experience of becoming a parent biologically. So you've got to remember you carried the babies. There are structures in the brain that change then to very clearly go, oh my goodness, I'm now parenting a child, I'm responsible for this child. So that's all to do with the right side of the brain in terms of the bonding behaviours. You become more reactive to crying and you become 
more satisfied to things like seeing your baby smile. So, you know, you spend all that time kind of staring into your baby's face. That actually has a bonding impact. There's, we're meant to do that because the baby responds to us, we respond to the baby, and it causes a spike in oxytocin, which is the love hormone. Hence why that newborn bubble can also be known as the love bubble. Um, but as your children get older, what doesn't happen, believe it or not, is we don't become less right brain smart. So now that that right brain has entered into the chat <laughs> to go, okay, here's the job that we need to do to be able to meet these little kids' needs, that doesn't necessarily turn off. I can imagine. I'm wondering if this is the answer to that or the, the I guess, biology behind that saying, you're only ever as happy, happy as your unhappiest child. Oh, I've never heard that before, but that stabs me in the heart. It's true though, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. I wonder if that's related because you can't, I always thought, you know, I would support and guide my children through whatever happened in their lives, but every little heartache they have is like, oh, God, I wish I could separate myself from that. Absolutely. High school is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> and even building resilience in them is hard because of that, because this drive to want to make sure that they're okay, biologically, it's happening in our brain, is really difficult to ignore. It makes it really difficult to be able to draw a line between where's my responsibility to take their pain away and meet their need versus where's my responsibility to make sure that they can withstand the abrasiveness of the world at large and develop some resilience to that. You've just explained how that right side of our brain switches mm. on when we parent. Could you give us an example of how it might look before you're a parent then after you're a parent, like in terms of how our brain functions? Yeah. Yeah, I think you gave a perfect example of how you're a biological parent in terms of birthing the child versus the non-birth parent. Um, in When you see the non-birth parent not wake up to a crying baby, it's right there in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's but very true. prior to becoming um, a parent, I, I wonder if listeners can experience or have experienced this because it's something that I experienced and I'm now horrified at myself. <laughs> For having this experience, but I would like sit on an aeroplane here, a crying baby, and think, "Oh my god, <laughs> they're in the row behind me. I'm going to have to put up with this for the entire flight." I did not ask for this. Why can't these parents control their kid? <laughs> um, and now I'm the one that turns around and goes, "It's okay. It's just her ears, you know. It's okay. Oh, are you okay, Baba? Oh, I get it. It's tough. You're doing a great job, you know." <laughs> And I think what happens is prior to becoming a parent, you are very much living a self-driven life and just focused on your own needs and you don't have that drive to respond to a cry. So when I would hear a baby crying, it would irritate me prior to becoming a parent. It was like just a noise in my environment that felt abrasive. Now that I'm a parent, I hear it. And even if it's not my own child, I feel a biological need to respond. What can our brain tell us about why we repeat the patterns of our childhood in terms of how we parent our kids? Nothing consciously. <laughs> There's a, it's so unconscious. Yeah, it's all unconscious. Uh, 
I think it's really important to understand that your brain stores information in it. Um, might sound fairly obvious, but I want you to think of your brain as holding filing cabinets. And in those filing cabinets are significant memories. Um, and when we go and transition into a life experience from becoming a non-parent to a parent, then you're in a place where your brain is going to access memories that you perhaps don't even know you have. And that then plays out in your parenting journey as you come across those situations that are similar to that memory. So it might be that your brain plays the voice of your parent and you then hear that voice of your parent coming out of your mouth. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> or it could be that you experienced a, an event that's similar to your own child and that upset your child and you relive um, how upset you were at that age and yep. what your parent didn't do. So those emotional wounds also live inside our body that, that can then play out via those memories. One of the things that happened when I was growing up is that I and my brother would often fight and he was four years older than me. And every time we fought, my parents would say, you're just as bad as each other. Even when something really harmful had happened to me, I had done something to provoke it. And I didn't realize that was an unconscious thing in my life until my own children started fighting. Mm. And then I would think, hold on, I can acknowledge that they're both upset, but if there's a wrongdoer here, I have to point it out. I find that extraordinarily hard to do. Mm. But the worst thing is, because my parents were so fair to everyone, they never boasted about us. They never put us on a pedestal. If I was fighting with a friend, I always had something to do with contributing to that fight. And now I'm in this experience where my daughter is having problems with a friend. But my first instinct when she told me about it was to basically make a justification for the other person yeah. and to say, oh, I'm sure she's not this. I'm sure she's not that. It took the teacher saying to me, this is not right for me to go, oh my God, I'm I'm not backing her mm. and protecting her the way I wish I had been backed and protected when I was a kid. Yeah. But it really shone a light to me on just how ingrained that was in my way of being. Yeah. And how it colors your perspective. Your, your perspective is... Uh, very much coloured by what you were reinforced for as a child, what you were rewarded for, what you were disciplined for. Um, and that then repeats and plays out in these situations, these interactions through your child. It really makes me think that we should say out loud how much um, going to therapy is important. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. But you can't I'm not sure I know anyone who's in therapy permanently, you know, or necessarily has the money to be in therapy permanently because these things do keep coming up and they will keep coming up at every stage of your life. And then what happens is your brain goes and looks for a reference point. So it goes and sifts through those filing cabinets to go, what do I know about these types of situations? Oh, I know what my parents did. And so my parents did X, which means I need to do what they did in order to be a good girl. 
And or this is in, all unconscious, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. You're not consciously doing this. Your process as an adult is then dealing with what actually happened in your reality as a child. And you're applying that and how it's integrated to your child's experience right now. And no matter how great you are as a parent right now, your stuff is going to color your experience and it will come through. We can't undo that, but we can be aware of it. And I think if you're listening to this podcast, you're already halfway there because there are so many parents that land in adulthood without the capacity to create psychological safety for themselves, without the capacity to regulate their own emotions and their own responses to their environment and to other people. And then they go and have kids and they don't necessarily do the work on their own stuff before they then have to do that in a situation that involves a child, including their own interactions with that child. So this isn't about being perfect. It's about understanding that even with just the most minor awareness that your stuff influences who you're being as a parent, it's a great start. What does a calm, healthy and functioning brain look like? That is when we're in our flow, I guess, as a parent. Yeah. You know, my first instinct to this question is there isn't one. Yeah. Um, (laughs) There isn't one because no, every brain is reactive and constantly reacting to its environment. But if we're talking about yourself when you feel most comfortable, when you feel like you're shining as a parent as the best version of what you'd like to be, What's happening in your brain is that you have access between your limbic system, that impulsive part of your brain, and your left prefrontal cortex, the part that is actually uh, bringing logic and rationality to your behavior. Those two are communicating. That's what we want. We want the fear system in your brain to be talking to the logical part of your brain to go, how much do you need from me here? Um, do, do we need the alarms? Are they actually necessary? <laughs> or is there another way that we can think about that? When you've got those two structures communicating, it means that you're, you then have enough mental space to be able to respond with thought, to respond mindfully and to regulate yourself before you actually parent your child, to parent you before you parent them. When I was talking about, you know, the situation with my brother and my parents, I mean, that effectively is a neural pathway that was laid down when I was six or seven and has continued. (laughs) I've continued walking down that path for my lifetime. How do we reform or change that pathway when it is so well trodden? I want to just bring this to listeners with a different term than neural pathway. Let's look at it as a relational template. So what happens with parents is uh, parents and their children. So little Chev uh, had these experiences in your relationship with your brother and your parents gave you a template for how to manage that situation um, by how they managed you. And what that template does is it tells you who you are, what you need to do in order to be good or to be bad, and how um, that relates to your value as a human being in that circumstance. And you then take that template and that influences how you relate in your relationships for the rest of your life. 
Now, where neural pathways come in is that the brain is plastic. I don't mean it's made of plastic. I mean it's malleable. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank yes. You. <laughs> Just for clarity's sake. Um, so neuro, there are neural pathways that support you relating in those interactions in your adult life against that template that say, when I feel like this, I should do this to get relief from that discomfort. So there's a template that applies that says, I do this now and what that means about me is X. Those neural pathways can be changed when we do things differently, when we respond against the template or in a different way that the template says, what actually happens in our brains is neural pathways will actually change. But it takes time to get them to change. So what you're talking about in terms of the repeating is that you have habitually reacted to this template as if that's the way to do things. And we all do that until we think more consciously about what we're actually doing and question the templates that we're applying to our own children. This is the whole task of parenting is we then approach our children by going, this is what was done to me. Am I going to repeat that or do I need to do it differently because there are some parts of or some outcomes that I didn't particularly like for my own experience? We can't ever get it perfect because parenting is hard and being human is hard. So it's more about then looking at, is this working for you? And by working, I mean does it make you feel like you're being the mother that you want to be? Does it make does it seem to be getting the outcome for your child that you want um, in your child, the experience that you want them to have? And if not, then how could we actually undo that template and do it differently? From a neural pathway perspective, what that then means is you need to practice the new way of doing it over and over again, because old neural pathways that exist with old templates don't just disappear. Unfortunately, um, <laughs> I wish they did. I wish you could just turn them off and turn new ones on. But what happens is when you build new, new pathway, it's like constructing a new highway. And for a time it's in roadworks and it's super annoying and neurotransmitters go, I don't want to drive on that. I just want to drive on the road that already goes to where I'm going quicker. Thanks. And so as we construct this new highway in our brains, eventually with practice, it actually becomes the default neural pathway. It becomes the highway that those neurotransmitters want to drive on, which means it dominates over those old templates and you actually see a new you as a parent. So what would you say to a parent who's struggling with this process, feels like it's it's taking too long to change the template. They're not seeing the results they want to see. Okay. If we're looking at purely a biological level, we need to kind of remind you that it's, we're talking about months, not days. So don't think. I'd say years. Yes. But anyway, yes. <laughs> it's <just> me. <laughs> you, you can't undo patterns that have been present in you for years in just a couple of interactions. Those interactions need to happen time and time again. But if we're looking at a lifespan level, we don't stop being parents at any point once we are parents. And so that means that you're always evolving. You're always coming at the world with perspectives that take into account what you know now that you didn't know back then. So I think it's really important for people to understand that 
if you apply perfectionism to what you're trying to do, you're just going to make it so much harder because the process is always dynamic. So instead, what I want you to go for is progress. You might not be seeing progress in how your behavior manifests, but you might be seeing progress in your awareness. So you actually might be much better at saying, I did that again, but I didn't want to. Whereas before, you weren't even able to see what you were doing that you didn't want to be doing. And then we shift to the next tiny step, which is, okay, I did that again when I didn't want to. Why? Was it because I hadn't slept the night before? Um, I forgot to get milk and we really need milk for tomorrow morning, which means I need to go out again. And that means I need to put the kids back in the car and it's going to be a nightmare at the shops because they're hungry. And I was at the end of my rope. So what does that tell me? It means that I need to just be a little bit more conscious in how I meet my needs because in those moments to expect me to do something differently is probably expecting a little too much. I think the time that we respond in a way we don't want to respond is often when we are at that point you just described there where we're just at capacity. Mm. How do we manage that? Because it feels to me almost like you're, you just, there's no way you can have any control in that moment. Yeah. And there's kind of not, if we think of it like a glass of water, I want you to think that at that point, the glass of water is overflowing. Like you've got no option to do anything differently at that point. What happens at a brain level, that impulsive brain, your limbic system is taking over and you're going into survival mode. And when we're in survival mode, we're operating at our most base level. So in that place, I want you to think of it like, I'm going to bring in another metaphor, which is probably not helpful. We're shifting from a glass of water to a temperature gauge. So if you think of it like an emotional temperature gauge, where we want the awareness is happening when the temperature is rising. We don't want uh, the awareness to kick in when we're at 100 Um And we can't do anything at that point anyway, because we're beyond. So the awareness needs to start with, is my temperature rising? And what can I do to temper the heat in the emotion before I get to that point where I erupt or implode? So oftentimes what we're talking about is mum might yell at that point or you implode and become incredibly anxious about all the things that you've got to do. It might not necessarily happen with something outwardly like yelling. At that point, I just want you to do something really, really easy because if we're heading to a higher temperature, we don't want anything complex. Your left prefrontal cortex isn't as clearly available at that point to to do complex cognitive tasks. So instead, what I want you to do is I want you to just breathe. That's it. The quickest way to be able to deactivate your fear system is to use breathing because it is counterintuitive to the survival response. So when your fight-flight response kicks in, your breathing rate will increase, your heart rate will increase. You'll have a sensation of your heart pounding and your breathing will become shallow. If you consciously slow your breathing down, your fear system goes, what? I thought, what? (laughs) What are we doing? I thought we were panicking. Um, I'm ready to panic. I'm available for panicking. And now we're slowing our breathing down. What is happening with that? Now, as you actually then interrupt that pattern, 
you're creating a tiny space of awareness, which then gives you the option for a tiny choice to do something differently. So when you're breathing, um, I also want to limit this as well, because we don't want you to be doing breathing exercises for 10 minutes because you won't have 10 minutes. I'm talking about 60 seconds or 10 breaths. All I want you to do is breathe in for three counts and out for three counts for 10 breaths. That's it. So when you were talking about that temperature going up, uh, what it made me think of was it can happen so quickly. So one of the times that you're pretty guaranteed to see that happening in my own brain is in the preparation for school. And the problem is it's often my fault, but we're, we're, we'll be running late, you know, and I've said a number of times, put your shoes on, clean your teeth. By the time we're running late, it's, it just like in a second, my emotions are in that place where I'm so angry, even though my rational brain knows, hey, you contributed to this because you had a shower and you were watching, you were scrolling through Instagram while you're eating your breakfast and blah, blah, blah. It's not all on them. And my kids, I'm pretty, I'm not a yeller, but those are the few times when I've gotten really cross. And then we're all in the car and the kids are crying and I'm like, oh my God, it really doesn't matter. We're going to be maybe five minutes late. Who cares? The world's not going to end. And yet in the space of, you know, we probably have an hour to get ready for school. It's the last five minutes yep. that I just lose my shears. Yep. <laughs> and that's a perfect example of when you're t your temperature rises, but what we're trying to create is a tiny window of interruption to that, where we can actually introduce your breath to be able to stop for 60 seconds and reevaluate and calm that fear system response so that you can then enter with the left prefrontal cortex <laughs> to go, actually, it's not the end of the world. And the calmer I am, the quicker these things get done. Beck, that makes so much sense to me. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Chef. That was the second episode in our series, Parenting the Parent with Dr. Rebecca Ray. Next time we explore a topic that everyone has an opinion on, parenting styles. Do you have one? Are you a helicopter or a tiger? Maybe you're free range. To find out, join myself and Dr. Rebecca Ray next time on Parenting the Parent. And to enjoy all the weekly episodes in this series, please like or follow Feed Play Love wherever you listen. See you then. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the listener app and don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.